Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back, everyone. It's episode 12 of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. I'm your co-host, Michael Cerulli, president of the College Democrats. And I'm Dave Kostek from the Connecticut Democratic Party. This week on the show, we had a great group of guests. I spoke with our outstanding junior U.S. Senator, uh, Chris Murphy. And I talked to a couple of presidential electors from the great state of Connecticut. Uh, one week ago, they went to Hartford and cast their ballots for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We'll talk to them about the experience, what they were thinking, what they were feeling, and sort of the awesome weight of history that fell on these seven people in Connecticut and 306 nationwide. Yep, great number. Uh, what what I think someone once referred to as a landslide, 306 electoral votes, and um, of course, are a very important process here in the state of Connecticut. I want to point out, I want to point out in in 2016 there were two faithless electors so he actually the 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 current president only got 304 oh wow i didn't know that so even more that more of a landslide it's a it's um, an even bigger landslide it's a it's landslider <laughs> yeah um was it any different this year because of covid oh it was absolutely different sure i think you know your families couldn't come you know like in the past it's, yeah. It was largely, I think, viewed as a ceremonial thing. And, and um, our guests will be talking about that. Like in the past, you know, who knew who the presidential electors were, even knew what day they voted, right? That was just <laughs> a thing that happened, sort of a yeah. formality. But it's um, it carried a lot of weight this time and um, may have changed some minds among the people who are attempting to continue denying reality. Right, right. I saw, I think it was the first time in history CNN has ever carried the Electoral College vote live. So um, great that you got to talk with them. And- and thank you to all those electors for doing their service to our state. Uh, I had a great conversation with uh, Senator Chris Murphy. We talked about a really wide range of topics from foreign policy to state politics and his work with Fight Back Connecticut. Um, and we had a lightning round, too, where we talked about uh, Connecticut pizza, Yukon Huskies athletics, and we may have made fun of one of our previous guests on the podcast. Oh, geez. Who could that have been? Geez, I, let me guess. Let me guess. What did you make fun of? Lieutenant Governor Bicewitz? No. Did you make did fun not. of one of the state rep candidates? Nope. 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 I think I know who it was. That's coming yeah. up next on Connecticut. Folks, we are so glad to have on the podcast today, Connecticut's junior United States Senator, Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, let's let's jump right into it and start right out. Um, last week, you gave a speech on the floor of the United States Senate, which was uh, pretty severe, pretty harsh towards your, some of your Republican colleagues talking about uh, their refusal to, the, to um, accept the election results. And you had a line in there that said something to the effect of um, you can't call yourself a patriot while being against democracy. Can you explain a little bit about what you meant by that and um, what you see as the future for democracy in this country when one political party, by and large, doesn't seem to want to accept the results of the election? Well, Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States, no matter how uh, loud Republicans are in trying to deny the results. Um, he is going to be president of the United States, uh, and there's nothing that Trump and his crowd can do about it. But the point I was making in my speech is that the medium and long-term damage of this assault on the 2020 election and on democracy in general uh, is incredibly serious. Uh, because what the majority of Republicans are essentially saying is that they're willing to cast aside the popular vote and the electoral vote, the mm -hmm. will of the American people, if that's what it takes to keep Donald Trump president. Their loyalty 
is to President Trump, the leader of their party, not to the country, not to our democracy. And that is how democracies fall apart. When your loyalty to a person is more important than your loyalty to the common cause of democracy. Mm -hmm. And what you have today is a whole bunch of Republicans that seem to believe that if a Democrat wins in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Wisconsin, it must be because of fraud. Even if there's no evidence of it, it must be because of fraud because, uh, you know, Democrats are evil and I don't know anybody that votes for Democrats. And if that's the case, then eventually there will be an election that is overturned. There will be some Republican board of electors or some Republican secretary of state who will literally overturn the will of the voters um, when it comes to a Senate or a gubernatorial race. And if that happens, then I'm not sure how our democracy holds together, right? If you can't actually have the people's will determine who gets elected to key positions like the United States Senate, uh, then I'm not sure that we can hold together this country. So that's my worry, is that this is the, the most significant assault on democracy, um, the idea of democracy that has happened in my lifetime, and mm-hmm. I feel like I've got to speak up about it. And, you know, tell me a little bit about um, the seriousness of this from where you stand in the Senate, right? We hear all these reports that, you know, McConnell and some of the leadership, Thune and them are, you know, publicly they're they're saying let the president do his thing and then let's let's see how the legal challenges go and privately they're sort of telling colleagues reportedly they're telling colleagues you know biden's gonna be the next president do you get the sense that this is a serious thing that many of your colleagues in the senate like really truly believe that in wisconsin and in michigan and pennsylvania there were literally hundreds of thousands of fraudulent votes or is this more of you know they are publicly falling in line with the president. Quite frankly, I'm not sure which one of those scenarios is scarier. Um, But what do you see? Do you think that they're serious about this? And I think some of the House Republicans are legitimately serious about this. But on the Senate side, uh, what's your read on your Republican colleagues there? Well, I think there are a number of Senate Republicans that are absolutely serious uh, in their belief Mm -hmm. that the, uh, the President Trump won the election. Uh, and, and many of them will you know, say it out loud. People like Marsha Blackburn, senator from Tennessee, has said repeatedly that she believes that if all the legal votes were counted, uh, a, a, that Donald Trump would be the victor. Um, there are clearly um, a huge number of House Republicans that believe <laughs> yeah. the president won the election. And so you can't sort of suggest this is a fringe movement any longer. And I don't think you can also suggest that this is you know, just about people trying to keep in line with Donald Trump um, because you know he lost. And this would be the moment you would think that Republicans would get off the train. Um, but the fact that they're still willing to stay on the train, I think suggests that this is not just about um, you know, people being afraid of crossing Donald Trump. This is actually yeah. a huge number of Republicans in significant positions at the federal level that don't believe in democracy, that literally are willing to do whatever it takes to stay in power, even if it means disregarding an election. That's that's interesting, because I, I think one of the questions, and I'm sure many of our, our listeners who are dedicated Connecticut Democrats will, will have this as well, is sort of, like, how does that happen, right? I think we all sort of have an understanding of how the everyday person who's on Facebook, who sort of gets sucked into these information uh, silos, might 
come out believing that, you know, crazy things like the election was rigged or Bill Gates is trying to do something with the vaccinations. Um, how does that happen to a U.S. senator, though? I think I think is the question that I, I've been having watching this. How does that happen to a member of Congress, someone who presumably like you travels around the world to different countries and is sort of a very global person and has the best information at their fingertips and folks coming at them all day in Washington? So how does that happen? And what does that say about our system of democracy in America, is it is it just that there are a few there are people who are um, anti democratic, or is it that the whole system has actually bred this inside you know fifty percent of prominent politicians? Yeah, I don't think that you know members of Congress or the Senate are immune from the same influences that have created this bitter partisanship amongst the public. So there are plenty of Republican senators that are only getting their information from Fox News and sources to the right of Fox News, and 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 what happens when you are receiving information only from extreme sources is that a you know you don't hear anything that uh, contradicts your ideological perspective but you also are told that the country is going to fall apart if the other side wins the election that america is over if the democrats win and so you know you can have this false patriotism <coughs> excuse me in which as a republican you know, you believe that you're saving America because if the Democrats get control, um, you know, they're going to let the communists run the country. Uh, so that's the danger here um, is that there are many members of Congress who are only hearing those points of view uh, as uh, as well. Uh, we're not immune from what's happening to the broader American uh, broader American public. Right, right. OK, so. You know, let's let's dive in then to more of a positive. We've I, we've spent some time talking about some negative topics here. Let, let's talk about something more positive, which is the work uh, you've been doing in the state of Connecticut um, to build up local Democratic parties, um, which I believe really are the backbone of this movement against uh, anti-democracy, uh, pro-democracy, right? Um, you, in 2018, created Fight Back Connecticut, which was able to put grassroots organizers all over the state of Connecticut. Uh, how do you feel that model worked for you? And is that something you think will be effective in the midterms and in the next election, uh, next presidential election? Yeah, I think it was um, and still is an incredibly important force in Connecticut. Uh, Fight Back Connecticut was an organization that um, I began uh, shortly after the election of Donald Trump. And the idea was to you know, be able to effectively channel all of this energy that existed in Connecticut, um, people that were, you know, so deeply worried about the divisive, hateful, racist agenda of Donald Trump, you know, to channel that into positive action, to make sure that we were electing candidates mm -hmm. um, at the local level and state level that were going to help Connecticut sort of erect a prophylactic against the most reckless parts of the Trump agenda. And, you know, we were wildly successful in that endeavor. We, um, over the last four years, have dramatically expanded the number of um, progressive Democrats who have been elected to local office, boards of education, uh, town councils, city councils, and also to the state uh, legislature. Uh, and um, I, I was proud to spend a you know, bunch of my resources to help you know, build out the staff necessary to organize everybody behind that common agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and I you know, still continue to run the Fight Back Connecticut program uh, on behalf of, 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 of our common mission. Um, the question is what happens moving forward, right? I mean, there is this sort of natural tendency uh, once you've won to sort of take your foot off the accelerator. And, and I saw this in 2008. It was hard to sort of keep together the Obama coalition to work for the legislation that was necessary to enact his agenda 
after he won. Uh, and so we're going to have to figure out a way uh, to keep people active and to keep people pressing for the policies that Joe Biden uh, ran on. And, and we've got to learn from our lessons uh, when Obama came into office. So I will continue to run Fight Back Connecticut. Uh, it'll, it'll look different, right? It's not going to be fighting back against the agenda of the administration. It's going to be trying to rally people in support of the clean energy legislation or the health insurance reform legislation mm -hmm. that Joe Biden is pushing. And I hope people will be just as willing to you know, answer our call when we ask folks to turn out for phone banks and rallies in support of an agenda as they were to turn out in opposition to an agenda. Yeah, because I think that's something that certainly, you know, as president of the college Democrats, I'm talking with college students all day. And, and I think that's something that we certainly have a question about right now is sort of what happens next, right? We've you know, we're pedal to the metal for the whole year up leading up to the election, making phone calls, knocking doors when it was safe to do so. Um, is it is it sort of that same toolbox that we'll be reaching for as we move into the the you know 2021 or is there are there more things that we can be doing to support that agenda? Well, obviously, there are things that we can do right now. Um, so we um, have two Senate races in Georgia that are you know still open and undecided. And so Right now, we can focus our energies on winning those Senate races, and there's lots of things that people in Connecticut can do. They can make phone calls. They can write donations. Um, so we certainly have enough to do for the rest of the year. Um, uh, but then, you know, heading into the midterm elections, you know, we do need to understand that the trend line is almost irreversibly that a party that wins power um, in a presidential year loses it in a midterm. And so we are going to have to you know, fight really hard to make sure that um, a Democrat wins the governor's uh, office again, whether that's Ned Lamont or somebody else, uh, that Dick Blumenthal gets reelected to the Senate. Johanna Hayes' district is always going to be tough to hang on to. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we've got to be doing work early uh, in defense of our candidates in Connecticut that are going to be uh, potentially subject for defeat in what will probably be a tough midterm. We now go over to Dave for his conversation with John Calamarides and Dana Barcelos-Allen, two of Connecticut's seven presidential electors. 81,283,098 people think that they voted for Joe Biden for president when in fact they voted for electors pledged to Joe Biden. And two of those electors are joining us here today. We have uh, John Calamarides and Dana Barcelos-Allen, who are two of Connecticut's electors who cast their ballots last Monday for Joe Biden for president. Welcome. Hi, thanks, David. It's great to be here, David. Uh, so what a day, what a day. Uh, one week ago, you guys uh, went to the Capitol in Hartford as required by the either our state constitution or even the federal constitution and uh, cast ballots for Joe Biden. Talk about that day when you woke up, kind of what you were thinking, what, what you went through, uh, if you drove up that day, what that drive was like. Uh, take us through the day. David, you're, Dana, you're first. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I think John and I both had a sleepless night maybe the night before or just didn't sleep much um, because we were very excited about it. Um, you know, a few months ago when we were uh, selected at state convention to be delegates, for me at least, it felt like a very nice ceremonial honor. And then we got into, you know, November 3rd and beyond with, um, you know, the, the ways that uh, 
Donald Trump has been acting and um, calling, you know, uh, uh, for, uh, call, talking about fraud and and essentially trying to contest the election. And all of a sudden, everyone's talking about the electors and the electoral college ceremony became so much bigger. And I think for me, and I know, you know, some of the other electors that we talked to, it just felt so much bigger than ourselves. You, you know, you're exactly right, Dana. Uh, I, I had, uh, I was very, uh, anxious the night before I did sleep, but I woke up bright and early, boy, I'll tell you. And um, the drive up was interesting because I tried to listen to the radio, even nice music and things, and I couldn't do it. I had to turn it off. Uh, and when I got to the Capitol building, um, I had been a little apprehensive that I thought perhaps some protesters would be there. There were none, but what was interesting was that the uh, building was locked and you had to go knock on the door guard let me in and uh, and there were all our friends so uh, that it was it was interesting and when we were there I think Dana may feel this too when you're around a group of Democrats um, uh, and you know some people and you, you want to meet others it, it was a uh, it was like a, a little party we were having, a real nice visit. It was warm. It was friendly. Um, but uh, uh, I'm probably going to take you to the next step, David and Dana. But I think we were all apprehensive uh, what we were going to do and go through at that point. Did the Secretary of State or anyone else give you sort of like, you know, real strict uh this is what has to happen here, like, you know, sort of legally, because, you know, what if what if something goes wrong, right? So did you guys go through a session of, of making sure that all the procedures were in place? Indeed, we did. And uh, uh, the, there were several things involved in it. Uh, first of all, uh, they had a an actual script. Uh, the you could see how formal the ceremony was when you saw it on TV. I mean, yep, for sure. But um, it was interesting uh, how laid out it was by the Constitution. And um, we had to go through this time of uh, electing everybody for, for different positions. And um, that was kind of fun. Um, and we elected Susan Barrett to be chair. That made good sense in the year of the woman. She should be there. And um, I, uh, people have asked me how I got to be vice chair. And I said, well, I volunteered. I put my hand up <laughs> and got selected. Um, and uh, we, we kind of find, saw where all our roles were at that point. What were you thinking at that point, Dana? Yeah, we, um, you know, it was very, very structured and it is, you know, it's very nice to sort of see, you know, there was, there was the ceremony. And then after the ceremony, you started seeing people, and I don't want to say fall in line, but you started to see some of the people who've been very quiet on the Republican side, um, all of a sudden say, well, the electoral college has spoken. Um, and, and, you know, Joe Biden is vice president. I mean, it's president elect. And, you know, that was that was nice. Um, it was nice to be able to say, because, again, we went into this, you know, a few months back thinking this is ceremonial and, you know, those kind of things. And it's like, gosh, two hours later, you know, there were people acknowledging um, President-elect Biden. And and that was great for me. One of the things that was that was very moving was um, William Smith was one of our co um, 
electors. And, you know, he was 94 years old and said what an honor it was to be able to be there at 94. Um, he was very, you know, um, involved in grassroots politics in Hartford for many, many years. And that meant an awful lot to me to be able to be there with him as well. Uh, it, it meant a great deal to me, too. Uh, nice man, as all the electors were. Um, mm -hmm. Dana, I when I went up and I when I had the signed uh, ballot for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, what was going through my head was I'm one of 306 people in this country as a Biden delegate, and and I'm carrying this responsibility, and I'm thinking, holy gosh, this is really something. I and put that in the box. Um, boy, that made me feel good that I could do it for all the people in Connecticut. But I have to tell you, it was very emotional. Yeah, 100% agree. I, um, you know, as I was signing, and I, and I actually, you know, got very, very nervous about it, because I wanted to make sure that my signature, you know, looked good. But as I was signing, I was thinking of the hundreds of thousands of people who have worked over the past four years for this victory for Democrats. And I was carrying all of them in my hands and my heart, I felt like. So, you know, the folks here are in my um, hometown, in my state central district, all the 10, uh, 1 million plus voters in Connecticut who voted Biden-Harris. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's just bigger than all of us. And it was such an honor to represent uh, people and to sort of be that final voice for the people. Some brass tax stuff. What does the actual ballot look like? Right. Like you didn't fill in a bubble sheet. I'm pretty sure of that uh, you didn't go in, a, in an old. Uh, it'd be nice if they had the old thing with the curtain where you pull the levers and the big lever. I love oh, those yeah. machines. But uh, <laughs> no. So what did the ballot itself look like? Was it was it did you just write the name? You know, we did actually. They passed. There were cards. We each individually had a card for one for Joe Biden and then one for Kamala Harris. We signed those cards and then we were able to take those cards up um, and put them into the box, which which is rumored to be made from the uh, wood from the original Charter Oak. And that was really nice, too. And it was nice when I put both my ballots in. I kind of put my hand on the side of the box. And I felt like I was sort of delivering a, a benediction, if you will, like all of my good wishes and luck, you know, was, was going out to um, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect um, Harris. Yeah, I did. I, I did try to track down some facts about that. Is the thing made? So the box that you that the electors put their ballots into, as Dana was just describing, is you said it right, rumored to be made from the wood of the Charter Oak. And I kind of wonder if it's sort of like, you know, other other things where there's a ton of things that are rumored to be made from the wood of the Charter Oak. Yeah. But uh, it'd be nice if we knew definitively. Right. I'll take their word for it. And uh, I'm a believer. So there's a fair bit of ceremony around this process, too. When they go to D.C., you know, your votes will be transmitted down to DC and they're in another wood box with like leather straps on it and they carry it into the wow. like open them up and read them uh, one at a time. Um, do you know if this, if this process is standardized at all state by state or is this another aspect of our elections that are that are unique that happened 51 different ways? You know we I, I watched and listened to a little coverage um, afterward from some of the other states um, because some of the um, national news channels were carrying it. And it seemed pretty similar, um, you know, with the, with the names being read by the clerk at the end. And, and John, uh, any, do you, were you able to see any of that or hear any of that? Yes. yes. And what we, we signed six documents and six envelopes afterwards. And uh, that, that's standard in, with every elector in every state. 
they have to do that. Um, but I think it, it's um, pretty much a standard procedure that you have to go through. Now, a political issue is, should this even exist? What are your feelings? Should um, the electoral college yeah. even exist? Yeah, I am, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's very interesting because I actually spoke um, with Major Garrett from CBS News on his podcast um, called The Debrief, and he went um, into this quite extensively, and, and one of the things that he said, and I think it makes a lot of sense, um, he said, this year we really needed the Electoral College, and going into this, I, I thought, you know, well, I, I'm a firm believer in every vote counting. I feel that the electoral colleges is, is we've outgrown it. Um, I'd love, you know, there to be some alternatives where people felt like their voices were more representative. But I do really, really like the fact that that this year, 2020, and all of its craziness, the electoral college felt definitive, and we were able to lean on that as part of the Constitution and part of our country's history um, to make this decision you know, 100%, you know, stamped legitimate. I don't know. I, I know there's different, I know there's lots of different opinions on it and I, I could still go back and forth. You know, that's interesting, Dana. I, I'm of the same mind. When I came home, um, one of the first things my wife said to me was, you know, this electoral college vote this year is really important. And I said, yes, it is. It really is. Um, I, I have... Um, often thought that the college should be abolished. But then I worry that somebody could get into the popular vote and make a mess of that too. Maybe uh, the electoral college could be a little uh, brought into the 21st century with some um, ways that uh, make it uh, a little different, work better for all people. And I don't have any answers to that either. But uh, Dana, you and I are both on the same wavelength that uh, maybe we ought to do something, but I don't know what. Yeah. Finally, did uh, either of you think for a minute, you know, maybe I should collect the 10 bucks. They were entitled <laughs> to $10 pay for their day <laughs> casting their ballot. That must have been written into the, into the rules in the 19th century or something, or 18th century possibly. No, no, the $10 was never really on the no. table. Were you surprised to learn? Well, that, that was nice, but I, I, one of my, my uh, 14-year-old grandson said to me, Granddad, you should have taken the money. Oh, <laughs> Bought a lottery ticket with it on the way home. Like, this is my lucky day anyway. But um, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, um, I, I didn't give a thought to that. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was funny because my friends who were tuning in from around the country, that was the part that made them laugh because here's this very important, very somber ceremony. And then it's like, okay, everybody, are we going to save $10 here? So, um, but, you know, I'm glad that we're able to save uh, the state of Connecticut $70, right? That's, you know, something. <laughs> Dana Barcelos Allen and John Calamarides were two of the seven electors who cast their ballots from Connecticut for Joe Biden among the 306 nationwide who did so. Thanks for joining us here today. You're very well. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Take care. Senator Chris Murphy returns for the second half of his talk with Michael Cerulli. How did you get into this and how would you recommend a college student, whether it be a sophomore like myself or someone who's maybe a little bit closer to stepping out into the real world there, um, 
you know, how would how would you recommend that they get involved in this? Would it be through an organization like Fightback? Would it be to like just straight out run for office, like you know, Will Haskell or Matt Lesser or somebody did? Um, what what would be your recommendation? And sort of how did you do it? Well, you know, I was interested in government and politics as a high school student. Uh, my my I don't come from a family with any real political background, but uh, you know, my mother raised us all. My mother grew up very poor in public housing. We mm-hmm. grew up economically secure and she raised us to understand that we needed to order our lives in a way that gave back um, that guaranteed that more kids had access to the things that we had access to and so you know the the, the avenue that i chose was was public service and government and i and i started taking that path at a really uh, young age i was sort of volunteering for candidates when i was 16 17 years old and i just think that's the best way to start i i think you learn the most from being inside a political campaign. I also did an internship for Chris Dodd uh, when I was in college, but um, as much as I enjoyed that experience, the experiences that taught me the most uh, were those when I was um, working on a campaign, part of a team. You, you often have a little bit more access to the principal when you're you know, at that level uh, as well. So for folks that wanna get involved, um, you know, I'd suggest they go out and volunteer for somebody for somebody's campaign in a uh, municipal campaign in 2021 or a state legislative or statewide campaign in 2022. But um, you know, when it came time when I thought that I could offer something as an elected official, um, I didn't let anybody tell me that I was too young, uh, and everybody told me I was too young. So I ran in a town that I didn't grow up in. I had moved to Southington, Connecticut after college. Uh, I was being represented by a right-wing member of the state legislature. Uh, and I decided that um, you know I could do a better job than him. And tons of people told me that as sort of a new resident in town, as a 24-year-old, that I had no business running for office. Um, and I just didn't take no for an answer. Um, mm-hmm. I literally wrote a word on a scrap of paper, push. I tacked it up to my wall in my bedroom in the apartment that I shared with two high school friends. Uh, and I just went out and knocked on doors. Uh, and, wow. and, and and that's, I think, the answer these days. Um, frankly, the political process is much more open to young candidates today than it was uh, 20 years ago when I first ran. Uh, when I got to the state legislature, I was 25, the youngest member of the state legislature. And when I left the, the state house at age 29, I was still the youngest member of the state legislature. Um, 29 would be middle-aged in the state legislature today. So there's a lot more opportunity to run, but I'd really recommend that folks get some experience working in and around campaigns uh, beforehand. So that's some great advice there. Um, sort of a scattershot interview, but I guess we'll, we talked about the national, we talked about the local. Uh, let's get into the international, which is something you've been a leader on. Um, and I'll just say from the college perspective, I don't think I've ever seen as many young people get interested in foreign politic, for, foreign policy rather than when you and people like Ro Khanna go up to, onto the floor of the, the House and the Senate and talk about these issues, um, particularly the war in Yemen um, and generally our, our stature around the world. Um, what sort of ignited that spark inside of you to become really engaged in this issue? And, you know, how how are you more effective at this than you, not just you, you and Ro and, and other members um, at conveying urgency on a topic that people might not regularly think about, such as the war in Yemen. How do you, how do you do that? How do you make it relevant to young Americans and just Americans in general? I was only a few years out of college when uh, September 11th occurred, the attacks on America. And 
you know, I was already sort of into my public service at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, many of my friends decided to do their public service in a different way. Many of my friends, uh, my classmates decided to sign up to fight for this country abroad. And it was, you know, my, um, it was, it was people that were very close to me that were being sent to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq to fight on America's behalf. Uh, and so, you know, from, from my standpoint, um, you know, it was a generational conversation about how best to protect America. And when the war in Iraq went off the rails very quickly, um, it became apparent to me and many others um, that we couldn't adequately protect this nation simply by sending brigades to far off mm -hmm. places to try to solve complicated political problems on the ground. Um, and I became determined to try to find a different way to protect this country, in part because it was my friends who were being sent over uh, into this fight. Uh, and, and, and so that, I think, is a big part of the reason why, you know, I ran for Congress. I ran for Congress when I was very young, um, in the middle of the Iraq war, in part because uh, I thought it was a mistake and I thought we had to withdraw um, and that we had to build up different tools with which to protect uh, our nation. Uh, and, um, you know, it's pretty amazing to me, having now been in Congress for you know, 14 years, that we still have troops in Iraq and we still have troops in Afghanistan. Um, but that's how I came to an interest in foreign affairs. It was really through the, the wars that we were fighting when I was young and watching my friends go over and put their lives on the line to defend the country. Interesting. Very, very personal experience there. Um, and, and, I mean, what do you think is going to be the breaking point? I mean, we, we've seen over the past few years, you know, a few promising votes in the House, I think even a, a promising vote in the Senate on this. Um, what's it going to take? Is it is Do you get the sense that the Biden administration is going to be behind the agenda to at least stop the war in Yemen, if not um, in Iraq and beginning to draw down our presence elsewhere? Um, do you, Are you confident that this year is going to be the year when uh, some of that legislation is able to get to the president's desk? Well, I, my worry is that this is never going to occur by legislation. I mean, Congress uh, long ago began abdicating its responsibility to set foreign policy side by mm -hmm. side with the administration. And so it's almost unthinkable today that a troop withdrawal could occur because of an action by Congress. You know, these days we just sort of are under the mistaken belief that foreign policy and, and, and especially military policy is singularly lodged in the executive branch. That is not true. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, Congress has the power at any time to decide to end a war, to stop funding troop deployments, to mandate that they come back home. Uh, and uh, I certainly think that Congress should do that, um, should set up a, us up on a schedule to, to, to be able to bring our troops back home from either Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, in Iraq, I think it's a little bit more of a complicated dance because well, I want our troops to be back home, I want us to substitute that presence uh, with a, a partnership with the Iraqis to rebuild their country. Mm -hmm. We asked them to take the fight to ISIS. The Iraqis stood side by side with us in taking territorial control away from ISIS, but in the process, they destroyed their country. Uh, and so we've got to be partners with them in trying to help build that country back up. So sometimes it's not complete withdrawal from a nation. It's just substituting one kind of mm -hmm. presence for another kind of presence. In your general sense of the team that uh, the president-elect has put forward, uh, Tony Blinken and General Austin, uh, do you get the sense that they're going to be uh, good working partners on, the, on this agenda? I, I don't know General Austin. Uh, and so, you know, I look forward to you know, hearing from him. 
Uh, I know Tony Blinken well, uh, and I think that um, you know Tony agrees that it is time to wind down these wars. I, I, I'll be interested to hear what he and the president-elect put forward in terms of a specific timetable and plan. Um, but I, I, you know, will hold this new administration accountable. Um, I, I hope that by the end of their time in office, that there are no longer substantial numbers of American troops in either Iraq mm-hmm. or Afghanistan. Awesome. Well, I agree with you on that, and I have a feeling that most of our listeners will too. Before we wrap up here, I want to do something that we haven't done with other guests before, which is a bit of a lightning round. I've I asked some, some friends around to send me some questions for you. Um, the first one I kind of like, which is, uh, if if you had to take uh, your colleague, Brian Schatz, your sometime rival, uh, to Connecticut, and you had only one place to show him why Connecticut is clearly the superior state um, to Hawaii, what would be the first place you would take him to? That is like the most unfair there? question. You can't ask me. You know, it's, like, it's like picking a father to like choose amongst his children. You can't ask me to uh you know pick a place in connecticut okay so where would i so okay but i'll but i'll bite i'll 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 answer the question um i would bring him to the shoreline so i'd show him the connecticut shore i'd find a way to get him some new haven pizza yeah and then i that's our next question by the way (laughs) yeah and then i'd get him and then i'd get him over to sort of the you know, the, 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 the Branford to maybe old line corridor, we can't go too mm-hmm. far because you're only asking me to bring him to one place, but I get him over to sort of the, the quiet part of the shoreline, sort of show him sort of quintessential New England shoreline, which, um, uh, you know, maybe is not as sort of uh, dramatic as, uh, as, as Hawaii shoreline, but uh, I would argue it's just as good. So that, <laughs> that, that's what I do, New Haven and then some small shoreline community. Got it. So then the next question that we have is, what is your favorite New Haven pizza place? uh modern uh so i'm a so i'm That's a modern guy yeah well i mean what, i guess it's controversial no matter what you say so my wife yeah. uh lived in new haven when we were dating uh and she lived um you know right around the corner from modern so that's in part why uh we became modern fans but uh, i've i've tried them all i love them but uh i'm sort of i'm a i'm a believer in uh in, in modern's pie it, and you guys are up in Hartford now. Are there any uh, good Hartford landmarks? I know Parkview Market is open now. Is there anything up there? I haven't been up there recently. Yeah, Parkville Market, everybody needs, you need to drive an hour to come see Parkville Market. So Parkville Market is, um, you know, this incredibly vibrant food, indoor, outdoor food market, um, tons of, of great local vendors, a lot of different styles of food. Uh, so that's a that's a must see in uh, in Hartford. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, you know, I grew in terms of pizza, uh, I grew up um, on on Vito's Pizza, which is a Weathersfield pizza uh, hmm. place that has a couple other uh, spots, and then First and Last Pizza, which is probably First and Last might be the most famous pizza in Hartford. It's in the South End, run by a great South End family, um, and and it's it's got some. Uh, I, I'm giving you a dissertation on pizza now. I know that's not why no, I'm on the podcast, perfect. but it's got some connections uh, to, a new, to to New Haven style pizza. So uh, mm-hmm. if you're in Hartford or the Hartford area do vetoes for first and last. Got it. Okay, and our final lightning round question, and as a UConn student, there is a right answer to this. Um, what is your favorite Connecticut sports team? <laughs> my, 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 well, I mean, UConn is my favorite Connecticut <laughs> sports team, but I, I'm definitely not going to pick amongst, you know, the men's team and the women's team and the, uh, the football team. Uh, but, yeah, no, I've been a – Huge UConn fan uh, my entire life. Uh, I um, 
I grew I grew up, you know, in the in just sort of this amazing year to be a UConn fan because I was in sort of high school and mm-hmm. college just as Jim Calhoun was showing up. And so those early teams, the the Tate George teams and the Chris Smith teams that like you know nothing about uh, yeah. <laughs> my those those were so I've sort of gotten to to ride the whole journey of Gino's career and Calhoun's career. I, I started out rooting for UConn when nobody knew who they were and have gotten to watch them grow into these powerhouses. And don't sleep on the UConn men this year. That is a uh, that is a pretty oh, yeah. I've watched it, you know, the, the first couple of games and that's a that's a fun, really versatile team. I think they're gonna tear yeah. it up in the big east if they ever play any games. I think so too. Um, and finally, which is the question comes from me, we had a, one of our former guests on here, uh, Mayor Florsheim. I asked him to tell a funny story about when he was on your staff, uh, and he told a good one. So tell me a funny story about <laughs> Mayor Ben Florsheim. About Mayor also Ben former... Florsheim? I mean, he's just yeah. not funny. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, he's not funny. I mean, so I don't have any funny stories about him. He's just deadly serious, on task all the time, um, no sense yeah. of humor. So. I like the fact that he's being referred to as Mayor Florsheim. Now that's going to go to his. That's going to go to his head. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really lucky in that, uh, and I know I'm totally blowing up the concept of a lightning round by giving these long answers. No, but, that's fine. Uh, I'm lucky that I have you know a lot of folks who have come through my office, um, who have uh, you know decided to pursue a career either full time or part time in public service. Um, a lot of folks know Sean Scanlon, who was yep. sort of my political right hand for years. Is now the incoming chair of the finance committee in the state legislature held in Santiago, still works for me, is the state rep from Meriden, and I think the chairman of the uh, Black and Hispanic Caucus. Um, ben obviously has done incredibly well for himself. Uh, so I- I'm lucky that you know a lot of people have come to work for me that share my commitment you know, to, 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 to running for office and being in public office. And I, and I always encourage that. Uh, and I'm always very excited to go see Mayor Florsheim uh, in Middletown. Outstanding. Well, that's the end of my questions. Um, this You are the last guest on the podcast this year for the CT Dems podcast. So I guess uh, a little, any holiday messages for the for the listeners out there? Stay home. Like, I get it. I, I got little kids um, and they're desperate to see their grandparents this holiday season, but we're spending it at home. Um, I know, especially for the, you know, the young people that are listening, uh, Christmas is a time to go out and see you know, all your friends who are back from school. Um, uh, just lock it down this, um, this, this season. The vaccine is like literally around the corner and it would be a tragedy for us to you know, be irresponsible over the course of this holiday um, and, and really live to regret it given that the, the light is so you know, clearly at the end of the tunnel with respect to this mm-hmm. pandemic. So just be safe. Outstanding. Well, you heard it from here, folks. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy, thank you for being so generous with your time and with your answers. And we appreciate you coming on to the Connecticut Democrats podcast. All right, thanks, Michael. So uh, there you have it. Uh, first ever lightning round with a guest. I uh, hope you guys like that fun little uh, inclusion there. And we'll be sure to do more fun segments like that with our guests next year when we return uh, with the podcast. Um, and I just want on, on behalf of myself, I know Dave will. Uh, add his uh, gratitude as well. We want to say thank you to all of the listeners and all the guests we've had uh, on the show this year. Absolutely. And 2020 is coming to an end. And we all say, oh my God, thank God. But who knows what 2021 holds, man? Well, we'll find out <laughs> when we uh, bring on some guests and we'll talk about the politics as they develop. 
Coming up this year, we've got uh, municipal elections in, I believe, every town in Connecticut, but certainly a, a huge majority of towns in Connecticut. Your mayors and first selectmen, your boards of finance, boards of education, all those essential roles in every town. And uh, we'll, we'll be highlighting candidates who are running because that is your bench and that is really where the rubber hits the road when politics and policy intersect to really affect people's lives. We'll be there. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, and I want to say again, thanks to everybody. Dave, thank you. This has been a great uh, year of the podcast. Uh, and it was great to get it up and running with you. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. So uh, to all of our listeners, all the guests, all the people who have helped us get the guests on, uh, all the staff and everyone, thank you so much. And certainly everyone who's been out there supporting Democrats uh, up and down the ballot here in Connecticut. So we'll see you next year. And happy holidays to everyone. Mm-hmm.